God is very good to us here. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for holding off this storm until much later uh, so that we could all uh, be gathered together into your house. We thank you for who you are. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are, I am. You, you just simply are. You have always existed and you always will exist. And out of your mer- love and mercy towards us, you chose to not only create us, but also to redeem us. And to indwell us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving us your word that we can find life and truth and power in its pages. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth and work in us as we take a look at your word once again. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here are a couple of cute stories from a Reader's Digest article published earlier this year of kids having the information that they need. They have all the information they need but then drawing the wrong conclusions from that information. One mom wrote, My favorite moment raising my children happened while tucking my daughter into bed. Jeannie told me she went to the nurse's office that day with a classmate who had just lost a tooth. Unfortunately, the nurse said, You know your mother is really the tooth fairy. Come on, right? My my daughter looked up at me and asked if that was true, and I said, Yes. Then she asked, how do you fly around all the houses? (laughs) And another mom wrote, after moving to the country, my three-year-old daughter and I were often alone in our house. Because we lived in a rural area with no close neighbors, I wanted to make sure my daughter uh, would be able to call 911 in the event that something happened to me. After instructing her, I decided to test her. Okay, what would you do if you found me on the floor and you couldn't wake me up? I saw her little brain working. To my surprise, she finally said, I would go into the kitchen and eat anything I want. (laughs) Like I said, in both these short stories, these kids were presented with the information on how to properly view each situation, but in their brains came to the wrong, and came out being pretty funny, conclusions. Albeit not funny when it comes to faith in Jesus, a lot of people will either have partial information or have all the information they need to know on how to properly live out faith in Jesus, but they come to very wrong conclusions about what that actually means. We're only going to be spending our time this morning on one verse, but as we dig out everything we can from this one verse, we'll discover what Jesus himself says is the only right way to live out faith in him. So, if you brought your Bibles with you today, please turn to John chapter 14. We're going to read this one verse together, verse 15. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 14, verse 15. It's in the New Testament, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. This is what we read. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One verse. Now, the first wrong conclusion that many people have about faith in Jesus is that it doesn't matter 
if you have faith in only Jesus or not. In other words, the first wrong conclusion is that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have faith in something. Allah, the Hindu deities, the teachings of Buddha and achieving nirvana, Taoist beliefs in chi energy, loose New Age beliefs in attracting good energy, following all the laws and rules of Judaism, some kind of higher power, the universe, or just in the goodness of people, including yourself. The first wrong conclusion is that you can just throw Jesus in there and faith in Jesus has the same value as everything else. It's just another religion, another opinion, another truth, and another road to heaven. Jesus already dispelled that wrong conclusion, which is really a lie straight from the pit of hell than anything else, back in John 14, 6, when he, with absolutely no uncertainty, declared that not only was he the way to God, the Father, and his heaven, but that he was the only way to God the Father and his heaven. There is no other way. He is it. The next wrong conclusion that many people believe is that it's enough to claim faith in Jesus or just claim faith in God, lean towards a cultural form of Christianity, just kind of loosely hold the Christian-sounding beliefs, and it doesn't have much, if any, bearing on how you live your life. You just try to be a morally good person for the most part, and it's only really when you need something or you're in a lot of trouble that prayer enters the picture. And you throw one up to the big guy upstairs, right? There's not much of, if any, actual relationship with God through Jesus. It's more of just a, a loose belief in a God you were raised with or heard of at some point. Even though that's an extremely popular belief these days, we'll see how that's thoroughly dismantled in a few minutes. And the third wrong conclusion that many people today believe is that you can legitimately have faith in and even a relationship with Jesus, but that the commandments and standards of righteousness found in the Bible have nothing to do with that. They disconnect and divorce the commandments of righteous living from faith in Jesus. I've heard someone make the statement of, Morality is a human construct and argument. All God wants us to do is to love him. Somebody has told that to me before. In this woefully wrong conclusion, the beginning premise is that the Bible is not God's word, but only a collection of writings by mere men. And so, if that's your beginning premise then you're free to come up with your own version of God, what he wants, what faith in him entails, and how that's lived out. Devastatingly, that's what so many churches today and the pastors who preach in them truly believe. In that tragically wrong conclusion, the false gospel is, and you've heard me say this before, 
that all God wants us to do is to love him and love others, accepting any and every kind of lifestyle, accepting any and every opinion on how to view and what to do with a child in the womb, and accepting any and every opinion on what to teach kids and how they should view themselves and their gender identities and even, disgustingly, their sexualities, since the Bible isn't actually God's word. This false gospel preaches that we just need to love people like Jesus loved people. And the worst thing you could do is offend someone with your beliefs or opinions. In fact, since morality and sin are so relative in this false gospel, really the only sin, indeed, the greatest sin you could commit is not just accepting whatever anyone believes lives and promotes as perfectly fine their truth and offending them with your opinion about it. Anything less than full acceptance of their truth is attacked as unloving and as such unchristian. Disturbingly, this sounds way too familiar to us, doesn't it? With those we know and those we love. But what did we literally just read? What does loving God and therefore loving others actually mean and actually look like? Jesus himself saying that if his disciples, even us today, claim we love him, then what? We just read it. Then we keep his commandments, right? It's as simple as that. So what does all this mean in connection with our verse this morning? Firstly, we have a lot of internal evidence that the 66 canonical books of the Old and New Testaments are in fact breathed out by God by way of the Holy Spirit leading men to write them down. This is vitally important to our understanding of John 14, 15, and what I'm about to reference is only a few of those evidences. Firstly, Jesus himself recognized the entirety of the Old Testament, including the Jewish Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, all the writings of wisdom like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job, and all the books written by the prophets, which is everything else in the Old Testament, all as scripture or God's word. When Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees, he said about them and God, also, you do not have his word, God's word, remaining in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. You examine the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is those very scriptures that testify about me. In the same breath, Jesus connects God's word with all the scriptures of the Old Testament. There, Jesus equates scripture here with God's word. What does this scripture or God's word include from the Jewish scriptures since that's all there was that existed at that point? Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses, there's the uh, Torah, the first five books, and the prophets, and the Psalms, the wisdom writings, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
So what do we have specified here? We've got the law or the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, all the prophets, and an example from the wisdom writings. So in other words, as the canon of the Jewish scriptures had already been closed for 400 years before that point, Jesus himself recognized and declared all of it to be God's word. Now what about the New Testament? Firstly, the Apostle Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18 and refers to it as what? The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and then he directly quotes Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now keep that reference of Paul to the Gospel of Luke as Scripture in mind. Just just before he knows he's about to be executed, Paul writes again to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all Scripture, remember, he's already referred to as the uh, the Gospel of Luke as Scripture before this point. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What this verse tells us is that as Paul was well aware of Jesus' recognition of the entire Old Testament as God's word, and he even referred to the Gospel of Luke as on par with that same recognition of Scripture, he calls it all what? God breathed. All of it. Moreover, and right along with that, the Apostle Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. Peter Peter writes, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which there are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter backs up that what Paul wrote in his letters, which comprise most of the New Testament, right? As what? Scripture. Paul wrote that all scripture, both the Old Testament and including a reference to the New Testament, was God-breathed, meaning it came directly breathed out by God himself. How does Peter explain that process worked and happened to be written down by men God specifically called to do that? Well, Peter writes, but know this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy in scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. First of all, these verses completely debunk the unbiblical conclusion that we can read our own interpretation based on our own human experiences into the biblical text. Instead, we have to study it for its contextual and original intention and meaning. Why? Because it came directly from God. How? 
That's what 2 Peter 1.21 explains for us. The Greek word used here for moved means to carry along like ocean waves do to a ship. Keep that image in your mind. In other words, the Holy Spirit carried these men along like waves do to a ship with the messages directly from God to be written down. So while we can see different writing styles and creativity and personalities coming through the various writings of Scripture, for instance, that's how we can confirm that, say, Paul's letter to the Philippians was legitimately written by Paul, the Holy Spirit is who directly carried them along to write down what he wanted them to write down. Everybody still with me? Okay. Since both... Old and New Testaments are God-breathed and carried out directly by the Holy Spirit. That means that the entirety of God's word is without error, without contradiction, without falsehood, and accurate in all of its record of world and human history along with its doctrine. God is truth, and therefore everything in his word is truth. And therefore, the Bible, along with its commandments, are our final authority on how we are to live our lives. That's the first biblical and therefore correct, right, and truthful conclusion we have to see from God's word itself. That the Bible is not simply a collection of religious writings written by mere men and can either be seen as an unauthoritative guidebook with some inspirational bumper sticker sayings at best or tossed out the window as lies and irrelevant to anything today at worst. The Bible is the very word of God, the only foundation for truth and the final authority for how we are to live our lives. Now, let's take that first biblical conclusion and bring it back to our verse this morning. Jesus first starts out this verse with the phrase, If you love me. What this concludes for us is that we should and really must love Jesus in order to have faith in Jesus. Remember what this is in the context of. What we've been discussing over the past month and a half or so. That to know Jesus means to know God the Father, right? That's what we've been talking about for the past month or so. Jesus is the only way to the Father. To have faith in Jesus and everything he said about himself, including his own deity, and the only way to salvation from sin means to have faith in God. That's what it equals. And here, to love Jesus equals to love God. In other words, you cannot claim to love God or have any sort of faith in God if you don't first love Jesus. You can't claim to love God or love Jesus if you haven't already committed to living solely for him and remaining faithful to only him. What is one aspect of love in a marriage? Faithfulness to your spouse and your spouse only, right? 
In fact, God called Israel out time and time again for their unfaithfulness to him by comparing them to a wife who acts like a prostitute and is sexually unfaithful over and over again. So again, this is yet another reference to having faith in Jesus means loving Jesus, and loving Jesus means that you are faithful to him as the only way only truth, and only life, and him alone. Loving Jesus equals forsaking all other religions or beliefs as true in any way, and legitimate ways to heaven, and forsaking all desires for and commitments to this world or worldly living. When you repent of your sins and any desires for worldly living and take Jesus as your Savior and King, loving Jesus means being sold out for him and him alone. So since loving Jesus means being sold out for him and him alone, what does that look like? It's not a feeling. It's not chasing after spiritual highs and experiences. It's not an empty claim. It's not a passive nod to faith in God. It's not just marking that you're Christian on Facebook. It's not a half-hearted commitment to him. It's an active love of living that out. It's an active love of living that love out. And just like Peter wrote about how no interpretation of prophecy can ever be based on some mere human's limited understanding, interpretation of it, based on his or her understanding of the world or life experiences, but we need to treat every prophecy and seek to understand it as a prophecy given directly by God, Jesus flat out tells us what love for him can only be look like. Jesus is not leaving it up to human interpretation. He flat out tells us what love for him can only look like. Love for Jesus is not up to human interpretation. It's not up to your truth versus my truth. It's not up to human construct or argument. Jesus flat out tells us What love for him can only look like and can only be lived out in our lives for him. If you love me, Jesus says, then you will do what? You will keep my commandments. Now, I want to cut something right off at the pass, which is a wrong and unbiblical conclusion that has been tossed in my face before. That when Jesus says, my commandments, he's only referring to a shallow, surface-level understanding, and Jesus saying the two greatest commandments are to love God and love others as yourself. We only need to have some kind of faith in God, and that loving others means to never call out their sin, what the Bible defines as sin, or their need to repent of that sin. Again, that's all based on reading human interpretation and human experience into those verses. As we've already seen, Jesus recognized all of the Old Testament as God's word. So to love God meant to love his commandments, and to love others meant to follow God's commandments 
on how to love others. That connects with the biblical conclusion on how to understand the second part of verse 15. This is not concluding that blindly obeying God's commandments in the Jewish law means that we love God. That's what the Pharisees believed, what Jesus constantly rebuked them for. And if that were true, there would be no need for Jesus or him paying for our sins. His first advent would have been meaningless. As with everything else and how best to understand God's word, we need to look at what else Jesus has already said. Jesus already said, and I know that his commandment, God, the Father's commandment, is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. What is the ultimate commandment from God the Father that Jesus spoke that gives eternal life? Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So what was Jesus' word directly from the Father? What we've been looking at throughout this entire Gospel of John, that Jesus is I am, or God himself, that everything he did and said was directly from the Father, that one needed to be born again through repentance of sin, represented by water, and accept that Jesus died as a substitute for our sin in order to save us from it, that he rose again on the third day in order to give us eternal life, that to know Jesus means to know the Father, his, uh, and therefore the only way to the Father, his truth, his life, and his heaven, the only way to any of that is Jesus. That's the ultimate commandment that Jesus is getting at here. That one needed to give up any belief that he or she was good enough to automatically get into the Father's heaven on his or her own, or they could earn their way into heaven following enough rules. The ultimate commandment to show Jesus that you love him is to believe everything he said about himself, that he's God. Repent of yourself, your sin, and your allegiance to this world and worldly living. Recognize that your sin only separates you from God and accept Jesus' substitution in death as having paid for your sin. Believe that he came back to life from the dead to give you the new life of the seal of the Holy Spirit unto eternal life. The other crucial part of that ultimate commandment of believing everything Jesus said about himself is this. He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Not only do we must need to accept Jesus as the Savior from our sin, but we must need to surrender ourselves to him as king. See, you can't just have the first part. You can't just have Jesus as Savior and never surrender your life to him as king. It doesn't work that way. These are words straight from Jesus. This is where the understanding that the entirety of the Bible is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness comes back into play here. 
Jesus declared that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And as we already referenced, he divulged that all the righteous law was summed up in love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That does not trump God's law of righteousness or throw it out the window or base it on human interpretation, but rather it sums it all up. Jesus says regarding the two greatest commandments, upon these two commandments hang, depend on the whole law and the prophets. So all of it is summed up in the two greatest commandments. Not trumped by or usurped by or thrown out the window by. Not once did Jesus say that the laws of righteousness in the Jewish law were no longer relevant. Not once. In fact, what there is, and I dare you to look this up yourself, in every reference to the law in the four Gospels, what Jesus does is take the laws of righteous living and take them one step further. That's what he does. All we do see Jesus doing is taking examples from the law regarding marriage and divorce, sexual immorality, murder, being peacemakers, what loving others actually means and looks like, and taking them one step further for the point and heart of them not to erase them. Everybody still with me? Okay. And throughout the entire New Testament, which again is God-breathed and useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we see God's laws pertaining to what he expects his children to follow reiterated. The laws about lying, stealing, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and homosexuality, taking the Lord's name in vain, honoring your father and mother, honoring God, and how to love others, and many, many others are all reiterated in the New Testament as commandments for us to continue to follow as Jesus' disciples. In fact, the only laws that are not reiterated in the New Testament are the Sabbath law, dietary laws, civil, ritualistic, and Jewish festival laws. But as you read through the New Testament, you'll see that every law pertaining to righteous living in this world is reiterated. And as Jesus himself says about God the Father's word, indeed, as we've already seen, the commandments of both the Old and New Testaments for righteous living sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Jesus prays to God the Father that God the Father would sanctify or set apart and make clean and holy his disciples, by extension, us today. How? In and by the truth of his word. This again goes hand in hand with the immediate context of this verse, John 14, 15. This comes immediately after Jesus divulges that to know him means to know the Father. And since God does not change, his standards for what is righteous and what is not 
have not changed. To obey Jesus means to obey the Father, and vice versa, since all Jesus said was what the Father told him to say. How many times did Jesus say that and declare that? All I've said to you is what the Father has told me to say to you. And since the Father's standards and commandments of righteousness have not changed, obeying Jesus' commandments means to also obey the Father's commandments for righteous living. While we cannot earn our salvation and entrance into heaven simply by obeying God's commandments, the love we have for Jesus as our Savior and King is seen and lived out by a life of keeping and seeking to obey God, the Father's commandments for righteous living, seen throughout the entirety of his word. That is how we love Jesus. Jesus flat out told us this. That is how we love Jesus straight from his words. And while it's only through repentance of sin and taking Jesus as Savior and King that is the basis for our salvation, a spiritual growth to understand the whole of the Bible as God breathed and his word is a fruit of that salvation. An embrace and promotion of a humanistic view of the Bible, that is, that it's just written by mere men and not God, and therefore contains errors and is irrelevant today, oppositely, guess what? Is a fruit of actually being a follower and a child of Satan, the father of lies, as Jesus references in John 8. All of that is wrapped up and is what is meant from the immediate context, the context of this gospel, and the context of the rest of God's word in Jesus' powerful declaration here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just as with every other one of Jesus' definitive statements, there's no leeway here. There's no getting around this. It is what it is. Loving Jesus means forsaking all other beliefs and worldliness in an undying commitment to him. And that's lived out by believing everything he said about himself, repenting of our sin, taking him as our savior and king, and pledging our loyalty to him as king by keeping and seeking to obey all of God's commandments for righteous living through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That help and empowerment from the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey God's commandments for righteous living is what Jesus will flow into next, next week. For now, I hope we've all seen what loving Jesus actually means and what he himself commands what loving Jesus actually looks like, according to the truth of God's word. May we all, through the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit, seek to live that out. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that is wrapped up in this one verse, 
and taken in the context of what's immediately around it, what else is in this gospel, and what is in the rest of God's word, we can see plainly what you mean and, and, and only what you mean by it. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet declared their love for you by repenting of their sin and taking you as a savior of, their, of, of that sin and committing their loyalty and faithfulness to you and you alone, I pray that they would do so right now. And if there's anybody here who repented of their sin, took you as Savior from that sin, but have not fully surrendered their lives to you as King yet, I pray that they would do so right now. And Lord, I pray that you would empower all of us through your Holy Spirit to love you by forsaking all else in this world and worldly living and loving you by keeping and following the commandments for righteous living found in your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.